at this time, I am normally I would say I don't read uh, bios, but I don't have to do that because I would send you to the webpage anyway. And who in this room, honestly, who in this room doesn't know Kim Fox? Right. But uh, I have the distinct honor and privilege of bringing up the person who knows her quite and very well, and that would be Cook County President Tony Preckwinkle. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm grateful to be here today to introduce our speaker. I've known State's Attorney Fox for more than a decade, and we work together in a variety of different capacities, which I'll go into in a moment. I'm inspired by her unwavering focus on and commitment to our local communities. Chicago born and bred, Kim understands and embodies what makes this region exceptional. Our people, our culture, our shared ambition to make our city and our communities better for all of us. She's also intimately aware of what needs to change. A criminal justice system that's characterized by hyper-policing of black and brown neighborhoods, law enforcement misconduct, and astronomical incarceration rates for black men. Not to mention, of course, endemic racism and disinvestment, a legacy that continues to impact communities of color and their safety and stability. Throughout her career, State's Attorney Fox has remained focused on thoughtful, equitable policies and programs that focus on people and build safe communities. She continues to push our system in the right direction, moving us away from the ineffective and harmful practices of the past and helping to create a criminal justice system that is more fair, equitable, and effective. In 2013, Kim joined my administration as Deputy Chief of Staff and then Chief of Staff. Together we were able to help advance critical, ju critical justice reform that centered on the needs of young people. Kim was instrumental in advocating for a change in the law to significantly reduce the number of children, children automatically transferred to adult court a practice that worked against the goal of rehabilitation for juveniles and contributed to racial disparities in our justice system. We also invited the Illinois Supreme Court to examine issues in Cook County's bond court. At the time, the average daily jail population was almost twice what it is today. A large portion of that population was people accused of low-level crimes who were in jail because they could not pay cash bonds. This initial examination of our bond court and pretrial practices kicked off an unprecedented review of our systems and waves of reform. Cook County has made significant progress towards safely reducing the jail population and is emerging as a leader in, in pretrial reform. This momentum continues with the Pretrial Fairness Act, PFA, currently under review by our state Supreme Court. As the leader of our state's attorney's office, Kim has continued to work with fellow stakeholders 
on reforms and initiatives that improve the outcomes for residents and communities. Her administration has developed innovative, equitable policies and programs that focus on justice and prioritize community safety. This has included bond reform, a cannabis conviction relief initiative, the creation of a gun crime strategies unit, and a strategic response to the increased levels of gun violence. She's led her office through one of the most turbulent and unprecedented times in recent history, with a global pandemic and a national surge in gun violence, which has profoundly impacted our local communities. During this time, she's focused on collaboration, community outreach, and transparency. Cook County is better because of her leadership, her partnership, and her commitment to working for justice in the pursuit of thriving, healthy, and safe communities across Cook County. I'm incredibly proud to introduce Cook County State's Attorney, Kim Fox. As the former chief of staff to President Preckwinkle, I tried to slip in talking points for her to say nice things about me. <laughs> you could have said I was funny. <laughs> um, thank you, uh, President Preckwinkle. Thank you all for joining. Uh, point of privilege in my gratitude to President Preckwinkle. When I met her over a decade ago, I had just left the state's attorney's office after a 12-year career where I served as a line assistant and ultimately as a supervisor. And in 2013, after the loss of my mother, where I was trying to figure out how I can be impactful and have meaning in a criminal justice system, and one in which I had worked for a dozen years, I was somehow called, not by the president, but something, to the president's office. What she said when I first met her to, to quash the lore that somehow how we knew each other was that I like public defenders. <laughs> I said, okay then. Um, <laughs> but you need a prosecutor to help you on this issue related to our jail. A jail which was the largest single-site jail in the country, as the president had said. A jail that hovered with a population between 10,500 people and 11,000 people every day. A jail that had been under a federal consent decree for decades, a jail that I had visited when I was a sophomore in high school as part of a scared straight program that scared me straight into prosecution. And she took a chance on me, a supervisor from juvenile court coming, having never worked at this level of government, and hired me as her deputy chief of staff. And within six months, I was her chief of staff. And for two years, I worked with a boss who suffers no fools, who demonstrated what unapologetic leadership as a black woman looked like. You can clap for that. Thank you. 
who no matter whether we were at the city club or the economic club, the boys club, or on 79th, the speech was the same. She speaks the same. And so what she knows is that I have a speech prepared, two actually. I'm not going to read either one of them. But I assure you, Marianne, the outcome is the same. I want to begin by thanking my incredible state's attorney staff who is here. I must tell you that you in Cook County are so blessed and so fortunate to have the best and brightest lawyers, victim witness, administrators, and investigators in the country. These people who through the course of my tenure have been asked to carry a criminal justice system on their backs under circumstances that no one could have ever imagined. Through the closing of our courts through COVID-19 where our assistants and our administrators and our investigators themselves were dealing with horrific losses, spouses, children, who went home thinking they were going home for two days, maybe two weeks, and it turned into two years, and our obligation to administer justice never wavered, nor did they. They went from files and papers to a digitized office where the Cook County State's Attorney's Office left the 19th century very quickly and zoomed into the 21st. These men and women who have never wavered in their commitment to public safety, no matter the attempts to diminish the work that we did, deserve all of the standing ovation. I want to ask them. to be recognized for their leadership, for their work, in what has been truly, truly trying times. Additionally, I want to acknowledge and thank my family. My father and my stepmother are here with us today, as are two of my four children, Sydney and Kendall. When I took this job back in 2016, Kendall was nine years old. She's 17 now. She wants a car now. And Kai is now 20 and a sophomore at Illinois State University. And most people remember Kai and Kendall standing with me on that stage and Kai began to cry because she was overwhelmed by what we were about to embark on and I stopped and tended to my child. And I want us to remember that, that while I am a state's attorney, while I am, I am a lawyer, I am also a mother. And I am very committed to my children and my bonus children, Sydney and Savannah, and why this work and why this speech that I had prepared is not the speech that I need to give today. I want to thank my friends and supporters who are here today. And I want to thank my detractors who are also here today. <laughs> because it is because of you that I have learned to really dig into why, the why I do what I do. 
When people ask me over and over, State's Attorney Fox, how do you handle it? I, you take so much. I do because I tell the truth. I do because when I came into office in 2016, I have to do a little context setting because our memories get a tad bit fuzzy. 2016, I was sworn in on December 1st. For 11 months, that had been the bloodiest year we'd seen in the city of Chicago since 1999. I wasn't the state's attorney. That year, we had 787 homicides, up from 597 homicides the year before, when I wasn't the state's attorney. That year, we had controversies related to the murder of Laquan McDonald, and young people and old took to the streets asking and demanding for justice on the name on behalf of a 17-year-old who had been killed by a Chicago police officer caught on video and justice had been denied in 2016. I'm going to take it back for a moment to 1969, where the other most famous state's attorney, because I feel like I'm up there. <laughs> In 1969, Edward Hanrahan was the state's attorney who signed off on the warrants that led to the murders of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. And I mention that because in the course of the last couple of years, I've heard people mentioning other people's names as somehow disgraceful upon the office of the state's attorney, and I have to say, not, 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 we have to go back to Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. I go back to 2016 when I ran for office and less than 1% of elected prosecutors out of the 2,400 prosecutors across this country, less than 1% were women of color. 2,400, less than 1% women of color. 79% white men, 16% white women, 4% men of color. I knew when I showed up and put my hand on that Bible at the Harold Washington Library as a black woman from Cabrini that my presence alone was disruptive. I didn't look like the other state's attorneys, and I did not intend to act like them either. I came on a mandate to acknowledge what the system was supposed to be. As a prosecutor, my job is to be a minister of justice. My job is to ensure that communities like the one that I grew up in were healthy, safe, and thriving. What is often talked about in my bio is that I am a child who grew up in a single parent household a teenage mom who had two children by the time that she was 18, that I lived at 624 West Division in the Cabrini-Green Public Housing Project, that at the age of six until I was eight, I was sexually abused and assaulted. When I was in high school, we moved earlier from Cabrini to Lincoln Park, and for year after year after year, I moved from apartment to apartment to apartment because I could not afford where I stayed. And for six months in my junior year of high school, I was homeless. This might sound eerily familiar to many of our CPS students because I see some of our folks here. I lived the life of a gifted student who came from circumstances that were incredibly difficult. I had every criminogenic factor to end up in our criminal justice system, every single one. And people, when I tell this story, say, Kim, how, how, how did you make it? And it is based on the supposition that I was supposed to fail. And that supposition about my failure is not because of my work ethic or how hard 
my mother tried to provide for me, it is because we recognize that the system of education that provided a school in Cabrini that was not equal to the school in Lincoln Park was a failure for black and brown students. It was based on the supposition that we know that public housing policies that trap people into poverty leads to criminogenic factors that I didn't make up. It is based on the supposition that we know that these factors, when we look at young people today in the very neighborhoods that are impacted by crime and violence where we say, why can't they just do better? We know why. Because I shouldn't be the inspiration. I should be the expectation. So when I came into office, I did center that lived experience. I centered what did it mean to be the first black woman elected state's attorney, to be the first black person elected to the state's attorney's office in a criminal justice system that saw 77% of the people in our jails black. That saw the overwhelming number of people who are the victims of violent crime black. To see a system where we were overrepresented, but when I was an assistant state's attorney, I was one of a few. To have worked in that office for 12 years and walked down halls and see pictures of people who could have been my cousin or my uncle, either as victims or as defendants. And to say that while I am a lawyer and a policymaker, that I must lead centering the people who are impacted by our decisions. Because it was proximate. Because I could touch it. Because I could not go to work in the morning and not have a good dinner with my grandmother in Washington Park that night and keep doing what others had done. The policies that somehow feel disturbing were rooted in people who had never had access to power. And so for me, that's where we begin. In 2016, I was not the cause for the most bloody year in 20, or since 1999. We can all agree on that, no? Yeah. <laughs> I like to do a little fact-checking. <laughs> Former Leader Durkin, we can agree on that, no? And in 2017, crime went down. Violent crime, homicides went down. That was my first full year in office. In 2018, violent crime went down again more than it did in 2017, my second year in office. In 2019, it might surprise you that violent crime, homicides, went down again for the third year that I was in office. Now, I'm not suggesting, because that would be factually inaccurate, that anything that I have done would lead to <laughs> violent crime going down, which is why I refute the supposition that where we see ourselves today with the rise in violent crime that coincides with the once-in-a-lifetime pandemic is somehow the result of the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. It just doesn't add up. It just doesn't. It feels convenient. It feels convenient to somehow suggest that one person, one entity, one office, an office that I just described that has the most brilliant, talented lawyers who are in court every day, holding hands of those who have been impacted by violent crime, witnesses who aren't showing up, who are afraid, are showing up and doing the work to suggest that this administration is somehow responsible for a rise in violent crime is disingenuous at best and a lie.
And you may have heard, I do not like when people tell lies. Just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. So what do we do? In order to inoculate myself against what I knew would be the inevitable, which would be attacks on reform because we're not used to that, I created the first ever chief data officer where we were the first prosecutor's office in the entire nation to have our data available on a public data portable where we, you can look wherever you live and put in your zip code and find out how many arrests were made, how many cases were referred to our office, how many people were charged, whether they were convicted, and what type of sentence they got. You could look it up. And you know what happened? We did it, and then prosecutors' offices across the country started having chief data officers and creating databases, and now it is a national model. We are a national model for data transparency in prosecutors' offices. We started that here in Cook County. We had the first ever chief diversity and equity inclusion officer here at the Cook County State's Attorney's Office back in 2017 before the murder of George Floyd, before it became in vogue to say that we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. We did it in 2017 because we knew that the work that we were doing was impacting those communities and to ignore the fact that race and class and poverty did not impact our decisions, would require us to put on blinders and continue with policies that were failing. And so now, it is also a norm in prosecutors' offices across the country to have chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officers. We started it here. We have a chief ethics officer that allows for us to have in-house someone to work with us to engage around issues of prosecutorial misconduct, and I'll get to that in a moment the first of its kind in 2017. We also had a number of policies that have already been talked about by President Preckwinkle related to marijuana, for example, where we knew that people were being arrested, black people were being arrested for marijuana at a rate seven times that of whites, seven times. So we start prosecuting those cases, and what did we do? We worked with the state legislature to pass marijuana legalization and embedded in the legislation, first of its kind, automatic expungement and uh, vacation of convictions for anyone who had previously been convicted for amounts that were now legal. It had never happened. 15,000 people in Cook County alone had their convictions vacated. And just when we're out saying, man, that state's attorney, Fox, the things she did, when you have that gummy later this evening, (laughs) you welcome. We worked on bail reform. As President Preckwinkle said, this is something that is near and dear and true to my heart. And the work that we were doing on bail reform subsequently led to efforts across this state in the historic passage of the Pretrial Fairness Act that should have gone into effect on January 1st. But you will be surprised to know that there was litigation that was started to stop the implementation of of bail reform here in Illinois by other states' attorneys. 
by other state's attorneys, that I was one of two state's attorneys, myself and Eric Reinhardt from Lake County, who said that we recognize that having a bail system in which cash determined whether or not you walked and not your risk to others was unfair. That we knew that there were people, and these assistant state's attorneys who are the best and brightest in the country can tell you that we know that there are people who are engaged in violent, dangerous conduct, who have access to cash, who are walking on our streets every single day, making us less safe. Meanwhile, we had people in our jails who could afford as little as $100 sitting and waiting. And the implication of that is not just the money. Because then what ends up happening is they plead guilty to crimes that they may not have been found guilty of because they're trying to go home. And the overwhelming majority of those people are black and brown. Without apology, my efforts on bail reform were centered in the black and brown community. And when the Supreme Court, and I feel with all measure of confidence, finds that the act is constitutional, Cook County stands ready to implement the first of its kind legislation in the United States that has eliminated cash bail. We look forward to the day. In the meantime, while we're working on these issues of reform, because I know that that's what people talk about most with this administration, and it is what I'm proud of, we do the bread and butter of our work, which is prosecute violent crime. In the course of my tenure, we have seen some horrific violence, and there are assistant state's attorneys in this room who stood up to the challenge. To first assistant Risa Lanier, who has been my rock during this work, who right before the pandemic closed the doors, tried the case of the man who murdered Commander Bauer, and he was found guilty. Risa Lanier worked on that case. <laughs> to the murder of Tyshawn Lee, the nine-year-old boy who was shot and killed in an alley near his home, we secured a guilty in that case. In the case of Hadia Pendleton, the 15-year-old who was shot and killed days after performing for Barack Obama, our assistant state's attorneys worked to bring justice in that case. You will not find a prosecutor's office in this state that has tried more murders, gun cases, or violent crime cases than the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. I dare you to find one. And while it does not fit the narrative of what it is that this administration has done, these men and women tirelessly, first and foremost, put the work of keeping our community safe at the forefront. And then, because I know I got to... And then there's the work that we've done around wrongful convictions. And it seems that that is what's caused the most consternation from those who struggle with my leadership. I spend a lot of time, I'll just address the elephant in the room. People ask me a lot about one case. I'm gonna let you guess. <laughs> They ask me over and over again, State's Attorney Fox, do you have any regrets about 
the class four nonviolent felony against a D-list actor who committed a crime against himself. Attorney Fox, surely you must have an answer for why we spent a year and a half in special prosecutors and thousands upon thousands of dollars trying to determine why this person didn't go to jail for a class four nonviolent felony for a crime he committed on himself. (laughs) Surely, State's Attorney Fox, you know that that has caused shame and embarrassment to our criminal justice system. Surely, State's Attorney Fox, you know we are all embarrassed. Mark Clark, Fred Hampton, 1969. I mean, I'm not here to judge where we put our priorities But the fact that I have been asked and that more ink has been spilled by editorial pages and newspapers and reporters that probably when I leave this earth, my epitaph, my obituary will mention Jesse Smollett makes (laughs) me mad. It makes me mad. And it makes me mad because... Jose Cruz is here today. Jose, if you could please stand up. Why does it make me mad that you asked me more about what happened with Jesse than you did about what happened to Jose Cruz? Because Jose Cruz spent almost 30 years in prison on what he believed would be a life sentence for a crime that he didn't commit because... He was framed by a corrupt Chicago police detective. That I met Jose Cruz last summer when I went to Stateville Prison to deliver a commencement address for for the inmates there. And I was personally having a really difficult time in my life. And Mr. Cruz saw me getting a cup of water and he came shuffling over with papers And he was like, Miss Fox, I got to get your attention. It's amazing that you're here. I didn't do this crime. And what Mr. Cruz didn't know was the day before we'd already met and discussed his case. And I knew that Mr. Cruz would be going home. Mr. Cruz spent his first Thanksgiving and Christmas at home last year. But you want to ask me about Jesse. Clarissa Glenn is why I get mad when you ask me about Jesse. Stand up, Clarissa. (laughs) Clarissa Glenn lived in the Ida B. Wells public housing project and was the victim of a corrupt police sergeant, Ronald Watts. Clarissa Glenn was given a case in which she knew she was innocent and was convicted And not only her, but her husband. Clarissa Glenn is like me. She's a mother. And the impact that the wrongful conviction of herself and the imprisonment of her husband had on her boys. That when we did the first ever mass exoneration in this county back in 2017, the first ever, everyone applauded as though it was a human interest story. 
And then I met Clarissa at our next mass exoneration. And Clarissa said to me, Ms. Fox, I appreciate what you are doing, but you know what has never happened? No one has ever apologized to me for what they did to me and to my family. And I stood before that podium and I publicly apologized for a conviction that I did not secure, but that the system procured. And it has never been lost on me that these are not public or human interest stories. These are indictments of a system that allows for people to prey on people in public housing, do what they will, and nothing happens. But you want to ask me about Jesse. Anjanette Young. Stand up, Anjanette. When the video surfaced of what atrocities that Anjanette Young suffered in her home went viral, and we all watched as a black woman watching her stand in that room, surrounded by those who were there to serve and protect as she begged and pleaded for clothes, touched me deeply and personally. And our office did not wait for others to do the right thing. We implemented and changed our search warrant policies such that the state's attorney's office would not be complicit in having another Anjanette Young situation for which our office took part. But you want to ask me about Jussie. Marilyn Molero. went to prison for a crime in which she didn't commit as a young girl, spending the majority of her formative years there, a crime she didn't commit in which she was wrongfully convicted based upon the evidence and a testimony of a corrupt police officer. And Marilyn is home and advocating not just for herself but for the others who have been wrongfully convicted. She want to ask me about Jesse. And lastly, Adolfo Davis. Adolfo, are you still here? Yeah. In addition to being sharply dressed, <laughs> Adolfo went to prison as a child. And I recognize that people say, you do the crime, you do the time. Adolfo went to prison as a young boy for what is, was a heinous offense. And Adolfo, when he went to prison as a 14-year-old, is that 14? Was given what would summarily be a life sentence. And then the laws changed. Miller v. Alabama legislation or a Supreme Court case that said that we must review and look and recognize that juveniles are not simply young adults. They're not many adults. I introduce you to Kendall. She's 17. She is not 
a mini adult. (laughs) And I don't say that simply because she has not committed a crime that I am aware of. (laughs) I say that because I see the adolescent brain development in real time and the Supreme Court recognized that adolescents' brains develop at a different rate and therefore they should not be held to the same standards as that of adults. And Adolfo came back to have his sentence reviewed and this office refused to recognize the science. And a judge refused to honor the science. And Adolfo was going to languish in prison. And this office, appreciation, appreciating and reading and knowing the science, worked to have him released some 30 years after he had gone in. But you want to ask me about that other dude? These are not just policy differentials. These are people. These are not talking points for the left or the right. I have been called radical. I have been called woke. I have been part of a national group of prosecutors that didn't exist some six years ago who have taken up the mantra of safety and justice and fairness and reform. And I've seen the attacks not just on me. I should tell you all I am not special in this either. Governor Ron DeSantis stripped Andrew Warren of his seat as the state attorney in Tampa because he said he wouldn't prosecute people for getting gender-affirming surgery. But people want to remind me that there was a former resident here who moved to Florida that matters more than someone who shares his name on 79th Street, Ken Griffin. And I say that not to be political, but we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about people's lives. Larry Krasner, the Republican majority in Pennsylvania, tried to impeach him. Chesa Boudin got recalled. Kim Gardner, his attempt to have her removed. This is not new. So for people who say, oh, Kim, you, have, you take all these blows, it's not just me. The attack on prosecutors who say that we have failed in the past, but we can do better, is not unique to me in Cook County. But we have to get past political talking points. One of the great, and I, I'll wrap up, I see Jackie. One of the great insults that has come my way from the well of the Illinois State Legislature was that I acted more like a public defender than a prosecutor. And I have to remind former prosecutors that we represent the people of the state of Illinois. And it is our obligation as prosecutors, higher than any others, to ensure that the rights of the defendant are not impugned. And so you didn't insult me at all. You reminded me of why I did this work. And I've done this work for six and a half years. And when I started this work, when Kendall was nine and Kai was 12, I didn't set out to be a career politician. I liked being in the background. I liked watching my heroes fight the fights and being the boss and nobody knew my name. (laughs) 
And so this was not always going to be. That when I became state's attorney, I knew that I had a mission and an agenda that I wanted to achieve, which was fairness, justice, and equity, and that kids who lived in neighborhoods just like mine could live to see another day, and not just live, but they could be lawyers and policymakers in the city that they call home. And I feel that I have done that. And so I am announcing this day that at the conclusion of my term in November of 2024, I will be stepping down as state's attorney. I will not be on next year's ballot by my choice. I do this decision, I didn't take it lightly with Jose and Adolfo and Clarissa and Tyshawn Lee and Commander Bauer and the names of whom I didn't name today in my heart. But it's time. I do it at a time where there's been much speculation because we'll have new leadership in the city. Johnson is the man for the moment. And I met with Mayor Lake Johnson yesterday and I informed him of my decision to not run again. And I promised him my commitment that for the next 18 months that we in this brilliant, beautiful office for whom I have the privilege of serving would be there to work hand in hand with him to keep our community safe. And people, I just should say, were wondering, like, how is it that Mayor Lake Johnson won when crime is at the heights that we see right now, it reminded me of 2016. It reminded me of 2016. That the people who were most impacted by the criminal justice system and the failures to keep them safe want something different. And so while it is our desire to elevate the voices of those who wanted something different and didn't get what they wanted, we're going to lift the voices of those who have been system impacted and said that this is what they want and give them what they want. And I leave now with my head held high, with my heart full, knowing that better days are ahead. And it has been my honor and my privilege on behalf of Project Kids across this city. We in the house. <laughs> Liz Thompson. They, they don't know. They see you as philanthropist. You from Cabrini, baby. Um, they don't know. But I do this on behalf of those kids who are dying in our streets right now, whose potential we are losing out on because of our failed policies and practices, that it has been my honor and my privilege to represent them with the fullest and that in my next lifetime, my advocacy for these issues will not waver, my commitment will not be done, but you will simply be able to call me Kim. Thank you so very much.
if there's a question in this pile about Jesse, <laughs> we're going to have a problem. Put some water. Just Put some water. All right. No, I'm Um, so Maya Angelou says many things, but one of the things that she said is, if you want to get started, the best way to do so is to stop talking and to start doing. Kim, you have you started doing a long, long time ago, and she's not done yet, just so you know. Um, I won't ask for another round of applause because I know everybody's looking like, you all are late. I won't look at President Preckwinkle. I'm going to blame that on you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, I was remiss in uh, our CEO, Dan Gibbons, is taking some much-deserved time off. He's not here, but um, and a, member of our, a number of our staff is here, Amanda and MB, and um, this doesn't happen without them. So to the Maggiano staff and to the City Cup staff, thank you so much. Um, you can applaud them. But the state's attorney uh, talked about her staff, but I didn't see them stand up. Did I miss that? If you could please stand up. Thank you all for your service. Um, if we're working on a doc or something that you want me to do the voiceover on, I think it should be called My Presence Alone Was Disruptive. You like that? You like that? I like that. I like that. Look at all that. All of that. Right, right, right. Um, so there are a ton of questions, but I am considerate of the time. So I'm just going to hit a couple of them because the reality of it is she literally hit each one of these questions during her speech, not speech. Is that what it was? Yeah, right. It was not a rant. Um, so real quickly, um, this is, um, I'm going to modify this question a little bit from Gina um, Lamar Evans. Um, Gina, I see that you're not a member. We're going to have to fix that. Omar's not here today, but I know how to find you. Um, where does your office stand on issues, HIV, criminalization of women, et cetera, things like that? Can you talk just a little bit about that, like 30 seconds? Yes, our, my office believes that we are in the business of ensuring public safety, that criminalization bills regarding health care are not in the furtherance of the interests of public safety. I serve as a co-chair of a national task force of prosecutors across the country who are committed to fighting the abortion, uh, criminalization of abortion and reproductive rights. I believe wholeheartedly that a woman or, any, or anyone who is able to bear a child should have the right to make choices about their body and their autonomy, and the criminalization of such should be thwarted at every measure. And that is my effort in this life and the next to ensure that that doesn't happen. Leslie Honore is here. She is the CEO of Urban Gateways. Leslie, wave your hand. She says, how will the team remaining once you're out of office continue your legacy of equity and social justice? 
you know, part of the thing that happens when a new administration comes is that new people come and there are new priorities. So one of the things that was really important to me was that we codified what we did. The marijuana policy is now law. The, we stopped prosecuting people for driving on suspended licenses for their inability to pass, or pay tickets and fines, the criminalization of poverty. And then the License to Drive Act passed and was signed, and so we don't do that anymore. And then the work around bail reform, the Safety Act, the Pretrial Fairness Act will go into effect, and our bond policies of the past will now be the law of the land. So what we believed that we should do is not just have policy that was to the discretion of those coming in, but make it law. And so it is, we've got 18 months and an active legislature. We will be working forcefully to ensure that there are more laws in the books to ensure equity and fairness for all. I'm going to do two questions here so you can mesh them together. They're not related, though. Um, one is, just because I know you're that talented, um, one is, what advice did you share with Mayor-elect Johnson for his first 100 days? What advice did you give him? And then the next one is, I think I already know the answer to this, but just for everybody else, what is your proudest moment in office? Um, <clears throat> I will be honest, I told Mayor-elect Johnson that as a black man in leadership, um, that his role would be very difficult. I told Mayor-elect Johnson that I saw that despite the fact that he had yet to put his hand on the Bible, that doesn't happen until May 15th, he was somehow responsible for violence in our communities. That seemed crazy to me. What didn't seem crazy was that it was a black man taking on a role in a city that has not fully acknowledged or reckoned with its history of racism and what it does to black leaders. And I told him if anything that he saw in my leadership, because I would imagine you know that it has not been easy, is that you have to keep going. But know it's coming. And that his responsibility is to do the work with the full knowledge that it's not gonna be fair. And a lot of folks in this room know that it's not going to be fair. But he has a job to do. And to elevate the voices of the people who put him there. Ken Griffin from 79th Street put him there. Elevate his voice and don't try to chase those who didn't. My proudest moment, there isn't one. Mm. Um, when you see Anjanette or Adolfo or Jose or Marilyn... When you see your assistant state's attorneys who have gone into courtrooms and learned how to do Zoom to continue justice, it's, it's the stuff that doesn't, it's not headline making. When I see a, a young assistant who told me she's done a jury trial a week for 13 weeks straight, a different trial because she didn't want anything to drop. As a leader, I'm proud of the people who are around me. There's not one thing. I'm most proud of the 1,200 1200 people who work there, who no matter whose face is on the door, they're showing up to administer justice. I'm most proud of them. I am most proud of them. And I'm proud... And I'm proud that even when people try to diminish me in the name of something political, they don't waver. And so I am proud to be a leader of the most elite legal team in the entire United States.
So while this is, I don't know how many times you've spoken. I, I did not count. Amanda, do you know? A whole bunch. That's all I know. Um, while this is the last as, how many, Amanda? Four, Four five, something like that. No, I'm going to be back next year. We got yeah. Okay, so yeah, she can come back again, but you were kind of stealing my thunder, man. I was trying to... Because <laughs> they'll say she's leaving tomorrow. I heard the rumors. Don't but that's that. not what I said. So there is a picture somewhere floating around that is a picture of Kim and a couple of others, us and President Preckwinkle, and I literally thought that I was as tall as Kim for years. <laughs> True story. She knows it. I really thought I was as tall as her. And I saw this picture, and it was before I had to stop wearing heels. And I was like, well, why are they? I get President Preckle is a little taller than me, but why is everybody taller than me? So it dawned on me, literally, they are all taller than me, but I would never admit it. I'm going to admit it now, begrudgingly. Um, <laughs> see what I'm saying? Um... What I was going to say is that while she may be at the end of her term leaving the state's attorney's office, there's so much more for Kim to do. If Dan were here, he would say more to come. You know, Dan says that every time he's at the, at the mic. There's so much more to come. She's just getting started. And I sit a seat of privilege of being able to see it all, as does the rest of the world. But um, this is your another year membership. And Kim does use hers. So she really does. And um, that will be, that, well, you're going to speak one more time so you get one more, right? Yeah. No more mugs. We still get mugs. Well, we, <laughs> see, see, I knew Kim was going to be the one to ask about the mugs. We have a little problem with the mugs, right? That they were made in someplace else, you know, over the water somewhere. And we can't get any more. So it's like a problem, and we're working on it. And yeah, but I, I might find a couple somewhere. Yeah, Kim wants a mug, Amanda, so can you? Yeah. President, can you lend her a couple of yours? You got about 25. Karen, you got about six. Leader Durkin, how many do you have? Yeah, more than that. So can somebody loan her a mug? Um, all joking aside, thank you so much. Um, there were a lot of questions, but if you go back and watch this tape, you will find that each one of your questions was answered here. And I think that's amazing because she really did throw out the speech. It's not even open. It's, it's not even open. She just went. So thank you, Kim. Um, thank you for your service. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for the bold moves that you made. Um, everybody could not have done that. And I think that you know me, and I'm going to tell you that God makes no mistakes. You've heard that from me ad nauseum. But I also think that you were prepared for such a time as this. And um, if you know anything about Esther and Mordecai, you have to tell you about that later, um, you would know that you were born for such a time as this. So God makes no mistakes. This is on purpose. Um, we are so far over time that I'm sure somebody's going to give me the hook for it. Don't step down, because you got to do pictures and stuff. Yeah. Um, Every City Club luncheon is not going to be jovial and laughing and, you know, lots of fun stuff. Sometimes this public affairs stuff is tough. And I believe that each one of us probably needs to go back and watch this again because you couldn't have heard everything. Because what she poured into us today was some tough stuff. 
go back and get your numbers, look at your data. Um, King Harris is a big data guy, so I'm sure he probably wrote a bunch of stuff down. But um, go back and listen to it again. And that's pretty much what I got for you today. Am I leaving anything out? No, we did. Okay. Let me just look over here at Amanda. Did I leave anything out, Amanda? Just looking here. How do you know? You don't, you don't have my notes. Thank you, everyone, for being here. We are adjourned.